Like seeing that yeah. money come in and being like, oh wow, okay, fine. There's money coming in suddenly? Like that must have been incredible. Yeah, yeah you had me on the edge of my seat here. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the OWN Podcast, the podcast about making open source hardware. My name is Stephen Hawes. And I'm Lucian Chapa. And we have a guest, our very first guest. We have Chris Thorogood on the podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So uh, Chris is a founder and CTO of CNC Labs, and they make the long mill CNC machine. We met Chris, Lucian, we met Chris at uh, Earth or Murph? Murph, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Murph, yeah. Murph 2022. Yeah. And we were chatting a little bit and realized like very, very quickly that we have a lot in common, that we're doing similar like open source hardware and machine stuff. And and yeah, so we want to have you on and like this is just going to be an introductory episode where we kind of talk to you about who the heck you are, what CNC Labs is, what the long mill is, what was your journey going through and like starting the company. And we'll have you on later to go into like more details because I'm sure we're just going to get caught up in talking about our own stuff and not follow the questions <laughs> that I have written out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in this one, we're going to cover going through and you guys did a couple Kickstarters to get going how you guys found uh, employees and like people to come in and help work, what your first hires were and like what you prioritize first on. Um, once you got Kickstarter money, how did you use that money? How did you then go and like go do your second one based on the first one? And what you guys have prioritized spending time on for making sure that people that use your machine are having a good experience. And we'll also talk about some wacky stuff you guys did through COVID to like, <laughs> make sure that people were still working, even packing boxes from home remotely, which is incredible that you did that. I'm so, it's so, so cool. But yeah, so we'll, we'll get into all that and then also what you guys have uh, in the future lined up for CNC Labs. Yeah, it's gonna be a fun one. I, I hope it's uh, enlightening for people that are listening in. Yeah, it's, it's- I'm sure it will be. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be good. Cool, let's, uh, let's get into it. All right, so Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and how CNC Labs got started, how you and Andy got going with it and made it happen. Well, um, I think my starting story is very similar to many other people's story, where you're first not even exposed or know that the baking world exists in the first place. I mean, I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. The baking world? What do you mean? The ma No, the making world. Oh, the making world, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, sure, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Because like, what I actually grew up in a pretty small town, and then out of nowhere moved to Toronto. And well, in the small town, we don't have any programs on anything really. So yeah, I was just making Lego stuff and found it to be very cool. But that kind of leads to this weird situation where I'm in a high school, and then somehow a teacher from another school introduces me to this thing called FRC, and yeah. I got into <laughs> like first robotics. Yeah. And that was before then I had just done mostly woodworking and I thought maybe I would get into doing some engineering or some woodworking stuff, but that got me really into doing robotics and basically what happened was I ended up going to University of Waterloo and met up with Andy. He was in my class mm. and we were also living in the same student housing together and he came up with this really interesting idea to me at the time which was taking a piece of 90 degree L-shaped extruded aluminum, mm -hmm. turning it 45 degrees, and then using the edges to ride V-wheels on. 
Okay, cool. The the not not the positive V wheels, but the ones that kind of have the little divot in them. Yeah, the ones yeah. that are cut away. Sure. And prior to that, he was like trying to machine edges on flat steel. But like this is way easier because it just is already extruded like that. Sure. And he and I just got really hyped about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And why was a CNC machine being built at the time? Yeah. So this was this wasn't uh, not even a CNC being built. When I got into FRC, I found out about 3D printing and I got into 3D printing in high school. I had a a tricolor Mendel shipped from the UK for like Whoa. over a thousand dollars. I actually sh- still have it. No way, that's awesome. So I was doing like three color printing way back in the day. It was Wait, did, very did hard. You, who'd you buy it from? Because that would have been like a rep rap, right? Yeah, I like, bought it did from some rep-rap. random rep rap user. Like, was he selling kits or something? Like, how did that? No, work? the rep rap website was selling kits. The official rep rap website. Wow. Yeah, repraprepro.com. I still have like the emails uh, of like, oh, you successfully ordered this from us. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. So yeah, yeah so that, then then you 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 and Andy were playing around with like rotating the the extrusion and like yeah. he was interested in like that as an idea of linear motion. Exactly. Okay. And we were trying to figure out, well, at the time it was kind of him. He was like, "Well, what do I want to do with this?" Yeah. And I was just kind of the guy in the background being like, Hey, this is a really cool idea, I just gotta say. (laughs) (laughs) And that basically transformed into an interesting combination of like, he uh, was just starting this uh, class that was supposed to be like, come up with a fake idea that you would start as a company. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he's trying to come up with ideas. And he also was trying to like sell the idea of like the rotated uh, L extrusion to other companies for like linear motion, but no one was like hearing him out. Yeah. So he thought he would just make his own, and he he thought he was going to make a 3D printer. But um, he and I kind of talked about it, and I told him how the 3D printer market, even at the time, this was like I don't know 2016 or something like that. Yeah. Maybe actually, yeah, something like that. It was already really hot, and so yeah. I said we probably won't be able to compete. But um, he had just done a co-op where. They were using Shapeokos, I think yeah. it was the Shapeoko 2, mm-hmm. as a writing machine oh, cool. to fake handwriting letters yeah. for like politicians and other people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and he was the one assigned with building them, and it took him like days to assemble these machines. Yeah. And so that kind of came upon the idea of like, well, why don't we go into the CNC router market? Because it's these machines could be way improved. They're yeah. not the most rigid. We can apply this linear motion system. You can use it for like an idea for your class. He was trying to prototype these things and I was the only person like with an accessible 3D printer. So I was actually selling my services like he was buying parts off of oh, me. Oh, cool. You were a print. You were a service bureau printing parts for him. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, bec- like I had all these tools and like bolts and like ex- like hardware and stuff. So I was basically just like giving him the things so that he could prototype things faster. Yeah. And that sort of turned into me just saying, hey, you should just like let me be part of your company because <laughs> I want to work on this with you. Yeah. Wow. That's sick. That's so cool. So that's kind of how it transformed from just like an initial me being interested in like the open source community and me kind of being exposed to robotics and 3D printing systems and stuff like that with, you know, Andy having um, like his own background and some of that stuff as well yeah. into a molded idea and like a creation of the concept of the company essentially. Right. Uh, and that first machine that we were working on was the mill one. And then, so, so after you guys had the idea, you like went and did, I'm assuming worked on prototypes and stuff. 
didn't you start with the Kickstarter? Isn't that how you actually started doing the whole uh, starting selling them? Yeah, yeah, it was. This was like a a situation where, you know, Andy and I believe very strongly in this idea of like trying to be, I guess, like productive in how we spend our time. Mm -hmm. And even though we had started this idea in uh, January of 2016, and at that time, we'd only spent like four months on it, like barely, Mm -hmm. because we were in school full time uh, as well. This is in our second year of university. We still were thinking to ourselves that we kind of want to make it worthwhile if we're going to put this product out there for other people to consume, Mm -hmm. that we need people to prove to us that it's worthwhile for us to spend our time to do it, in a sense. (laughs) So you kind of, and Kickstarter is a way to kind of like prove that you have product market fit before you actually have to spend money on anything. You know, because like if the customers are there, you made the money, you already, you've already sold it before you started the work, you know? Yeah, in a manner of speaking, yeah. Yeah. And and so, but we did it a bit differently from how other people did it because we spent we spent the summer like we went to shows and we talked to people and we made iterations on the machine and everything. So the machine was already at a point where we were pretty happy with it. So for us, because we designed the machine so that it used off-the-shelf extruded aluminum, off-the-shelf bolts and V wheels, all the custom brackets was either MDF or 3D printed (laughs) with a small 3D printer farm we set up in our laundry room (laughs) in the student housing. That's awesome. (laughs) You know, when people talk about like moisture and prints, we just did not care. Wait, how how did your dorm let you do that? Like, how did they, like, it's the laundry room where people just doing laundry in your building, like, see like six printers all lined up and just not give a crap? Yeah, well, it was like student housing of five people, and they were all in the engineering program. (laughs) So we were just like, hey, guys, are you okay with this? And they're like, I guess so. (laughs) That's sick. Um, Same with uh, the garage as well, actually. uh, (laughs) We started, like, taking over half the garage for, like, packing and prototyping units and even, like, painting brackets, like, manually spray painting brackets and stuff. Yeah. Wild. That's so, so that's where, yeah. did you guys launch the Kickstarter out of that then from school? Is that where you actually launched it? Yeah, we did. Wow. And we set the, we set the goal for the Kickstarter to not be how much we needed to break even because we didn't actually need much to break even. The design was validated and everything was easy to produce. And you didn't have a minimum price break for a lot of stuff too, probably, because if it's all off the shelf, you probably don't need to like oh, we need to make at least 50K to buy an injection molding die. Like if it's all just, if it, you can scale pretty linearly with your purchasing, probably doesn't matter that much to hit a certain critical number. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which was like, it's like, it's a win for us and a win for the customer because we were yeah. wanting to make accessible open source product. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we could buy it, anyone else should be able to buy it. Um, but it meant that our minimum order quantities were very low. Yeah. But instead we actually based that number on how many machines did we want to sell to make it worth our time to start working on this like more full time? Oh, so it was more about like, can you and Andy make a career out of this size? Like if it's validated enough to like justify spending time doing that right out of college more so. Um, not, not, to, not to make a career out of it per se, because we were still in our second year. So we weren't needing a career right away. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it was kind of like, if not enough people like this as much as we like it, because we like the idea a lot. Mm. But if that didn't like translate in the pictures and the media we are making and like the physical product itself and the price we were selling it for, yeah. 
then we would just say, oh, I guess we're a bit disillusioned and this isn't something that people want. Right. And we don't want to spend our time putting something into the world that isn't in a reasonable demand. Sure. And so we can just, we could just pivot and, you know, spend our time on something else. Right. So we thought that, I think it was like a uh, hundred units was yeah. something that was like a minimum amount we wanted to sell. Yeah. And because the average cost of the machine was $600, the minimum for our Kickstarter was 60K. And you squeaked right past it. It looks like you raced to uh, 61.8K CAD. Yes. <laughs> we barely got there. <laughs> By like three three machines. Well done. <laughs> but it validated Thank it. You. It was like, okay, cool. This is something for us. It's worth our time now. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. so okay, so... You do the the Kickstarter. Is it just you and Andy doing the whole Kickstarter? Um, did you hire for that or was it just you two? The only other stuff we did was at the time we had a third guy uh, named Tim mm -hmm. who was uh, on our team for a short period of time. He mostly did like social media stuff on the side. Oh. And we contracted another fellow who was at the university who was trying to start up his own company. It was like a media company. Mm -hmm. So we contracted him to help us make the Kickstarter video. Cool. But outside of that, like all the graphics, all the other videos, all of the back end stuff, I think it was all done by Andy and I. It did also including like packing the boxes and like the kitting and the documentation and the rest, all the rest of like shipping those Kickstarter units was all you and Andy. I, if my memory serves me correctly, I think so. Sick. Yes. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think we only got our first packer in January 2017, like when we were starting to fulfill the Kickstarter orders and we needed like a couple pe more people on hand. I see. Okay. I think maybe we got like, and they were students from the university. We just say, hey, you want some money on the side? Yeah. And we would leave the garage door open to our house. And if the garage <laughs> doors open, they would just be like, if they were walking back to residence or whatever and saw the garage doors open, they would just walk up and say, hey, I have some time. And we'd have a sign-in sheet. <laughs> so they would sign in, do some work for however long they wanted, because we would teach them how to pack the stuff. Yeah sign out and then we would e-transfer them the amount as like the payment for their holy hours holy smokes that that's is, so smart that's so smart it's just like literally open door policy like just come in work yeah. when you have some time we just we need to help wherever we can get it what a good way to do it yeah. because all you care about is the boxes get packed and who or when does it as long as it follows a quality process it's fine yeah for a first run of it yeah Hell yeah that's awesome <laughs> that's so cool wow so we just we literally, the stations that we had in the garage were made out of, um, you know, every semester, like people move out and then they just toss stuff on the side of the street. Yes. So we would just grab the tables, bring them into the garage, <laughs> make packing stations yep. out of them <laughs> and just like put a bunch of the hardware into this like shelving unit in the garage and then just have rough labels on things. And people just came in and just did stuff and put it back on the shelf. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were using tiny little weigh scales to weigh out the hardware, the bolts and the nuts yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. It's surprisingly similar to us. I think Steven and I packed the first 70 machines ourselves yeah. before getting help. Yeah. And maybe a bit <laughs> after that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's one of those things where I think if you're looking at it from a, like, starting a company perspective, from that perspective, you might be thinking to yourself, like, if I want to make this a legitimate company... I should be taking the risk and investing or like finding an investor. And, you know, if people want the product, I should be uh, hiring people right off the bat because then it speeds things up faster. Yeah. But I think from mine and Andy's perspectives, it was just one of those situations where we were just enjoying doing it. We weren't 
trying to make money because we were students yeah. and we were like, it's nice to make money as a student, but um, at the university, we were doing co-op programs. And so we would go on our co-ops and make some money there and then go back and study again. Sure. But actually the, the co-op program worked in our advantage because only a couple years prior, the university had created this program called Entrepreneurship Co-op or e-co-op for sure. Okay. Oh, good. And that allowed you to basically work for yourself, like on your own company oh, no during way. a work term. Really? That's such a cool idea. And it still would count idea. as a work term. Wow. Which is very unique. Um, the other thing about the University of Waterloo is like some universities, if you create IP while you're at the university, they actually claim a percentage of that IP. Yeah. But the University of Waterloo doesn't do that. Yeah. So it, it accomplished a couple of things. A, we were able to keep all of it, which we were just going to publish it open source anyways. So that allowed us to publish it open source. Yeah. B, we were able to use our co-op periods to work on our business, even though we were technically full-time students. Sure. And so we kept being able to do like four months of study, four months of work, four months of study, four months of work, wow. just cycling back and forth. That's so cool. But the other cool thing was the e-co-op program gave you access to you know, other people trying to start their own business. So you were able to make some connections. You got some mentorship through it. And also they gave you opportunities to make some money. So like in the first week, you'd have the ability to present like a pitch deck on your business and why you would be successful. Yeah. And if you were in the top three, I think, then you would get $5,000, no strings attached. Wow, that's great. <laughs> and then they would have like near the end of the term, you can make a video on summarizing like all the things your company's been up to and what the future holds for it. Yeah. And if you got in like the top two or three or something, then you'd get a thousand dollars for free. No strings attached. <laughs> That's great. So because Andy and I were co-founders, but their rule was they would only give you that money on a per person basis. So like if you got the five thousand and you went back to another eco-op, they wouldn't give it to you again. But it was on a per person basis, not a per company basis. So Andy went through the the program and in the very first term got all of the money you could possibly get. <laughs> like we won everything. Yeah. And then I went through on another term and got all the money you could possibly Heck get again. Yeah. That's great. So you guys really used Waterloo intensely for not only the co-op program, but like the students at the university, the fact that yep. there's these grants and these programs. So like it was heavily mm -hmm. Waterloo influence, like help kind of get you guys going. Yeah. And even even uh, right at the start when we're prototyping the machine, we're going to the student machine shop and right. using like the manual mills to create prototypes because we didn't have that machinery available to us. Sure. And if we we could have paid to get the prototypes made, but it was like we were trying to save every dollar we could. Yeah. 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 What, what's funny here to me is like, I would have thought there'd be pressure on you. I was expecting you to tell me there was pressure to like drop out or that even you guys did drop out. But that, that would be really disruptive. It was more conducive to stay in school working on CNC. Yeah, well, to, I would say to a degree. I mean, take it with a grain of salt because we're in a really hard engineering program yeah. <laughs> where you're like in, it's like uh, six mandatory classes you have to take and they're all chosen for you and they're, you know, really hard engineering classes. Yeah. And we're having on the side, like I remember when we were uh, running the Kickstarter, I was like in a class t like teaching me, you know, advanced calculus and I'm on my phone like answering Kickstarter questions <laughs> and like trying to like pay attention to both at the same time. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, it's not an easy thing per se yeah. during the study terms at least. Mm. 
to be trying to like simultaneously run the business um and like keep up in school like not fail out yeah um so <laughs> it did lead to a situation where in i think it was the third year Andy was feeling confident enough in how the company was going and he wasn't enjoying the engineering school side of things that he decided to peace out and pursue it full time. Cool. Whereas okay. I decided to keep going through and I did still get my undergrad degree. Cool. But I did have to take a year off of the program because there was a period of time where our company was kind of growing through some growth um, when we were moving to the new facility that we're still in today. Yeah. And so I needed to spend extra time on that. So I, I took a year off to um, work on that cool. and had to like tell myself, hey, I'm almost graduated. <laughs> like I've already spent four years at this school. Yeah. I'm going to take this year off, but I will go back and make sure I finish sure. it just because it's only one year more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So th and this leads perfectly into my next question, which is like w when you're growing in between certain chunks of like making the company grow and you guys are big now, you're 35 people now, right? Yeah. So, or yeah. big in comparison to Opula, at least, like if that feels very big to me as a number, but like, I was, yeah, it feels big to me too. Yeah. <laughs> going going from like you and Andy in the Kickstarter to five people, that's a weird jump, and then from five yeah. people to thirty five people, that's a huge jump. So between those oh, two yeah. bits of growth, like walk me through what was the weirdest part of growing from like you and Andy had validated it, you had a Kickstarter, you shipped stuff. You had, it was you two, yeah, you had people coming in and helping pack, but like, it was really mm -hmm. just you two with, with some hired help. What did it look like going from you two to like your first three real full hires? And then after you got to that point, then just the huge growth now to 35, what were those phases right. look like for you guys? Oh, it's, I mean, it's tricky. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys know it's very tricky, especially when you're two people, you have a huge list of things. That's like, these are things that we absolutely need to do. You know, asterisk, asterisk, absolutely needs to be done yeah. in bold, yes, right? Yes. <laughs> and then it's like, well, I don't have time to hire someone, like go through the hiring <laughs> process and then teach them everything and then make sure they're doing it to the same level of standard that I would be doing yeah. it and all this other stuff. Yeah. And where's the money going to even come yeah, from? Exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not even paying myself right now. Yeah. So what's the whole, so <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> like it's really, really hard. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and to be fair, uh, like just to put a warning out there to people, it's like, you will try and sometimes you will fail. Like sometimes you'll try your best and it'll still fail. And we actually almost did fail uh, one time. And so I'll try to go through a bit through the story. But basically, where it starts is kind of like uh, hiring light, mm -hmm. I would call it. Yeah. And what the light mode was of hiring was, this was another program at the University of Waterloo we took advantage of, mm -hmm. was they had this program called the BETS program, okay. which stands for Bridging Entrepreneurs to Students. Oh, Wow, Waterloo's <laughs> awesome, dude. What the heck? This is like, they are teeing you up as much as humanly possible to start a company. Like, they're like, please hire yeah. a student to the my company. That's so sick. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so so this was another situation that was kind of mutually beneficial. It was kind of like three wins. Yeah. So the first win is this is only a, uh, available to first-year engineering students who were trying to get a co-op uh, placement. Okay. Like, at another job. Yeah but they weren't able to get one. And so 
basically the university reaches out to them and says, well, do you want to be part of the bets program? Oh, okay. The se- so awesome. the second win is that the university is actually winning because this isn't the university paying for them to do this. Mm-hmm. This is actually a grant offered by the government. I'm not sure if it's a federal or a provincial grant, mm-hmm. but it's being offered to them to subsidize the student's pay. Okay. And so that gives the university higher like stats because then they have higher placement stats for their co-ops and then the entrepreneur wins because you're getting a student who like isn't experienced per se like they're a first year engineer so they're kind of like a a high schooler in a sense but you get them for four months uh yeah initially it was like three groups of people for like four weeks each or something like that but then it switched over into like a full four month thing Mm -hmm. And you only have to pay, I think, like $2,000 or something. For the whole period of time? Yeah. Wow. Holy smokes. Because the rest of it is coming from the subsidy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And mind you, like, they're not getting paid crazy good wage with the combined rate. Sure. But for them, it's better than not having a job at all. Right. So that's why it's kind of like a triple win. Yeah. So we took, like, full advantage of this program. And even though we were just two people... Like, I think straight away, we got two students. And then on the next cycle, we got four students. Nice. And so these students are coming into our stu- <laughs> into our student housing and like sitting in our at our dining room table with their laptops open and just like trying to do work. Well, okay. So my, my question for you is what, because yeah. I, I hear this and I think about like, what would, how would Opula try and do this? And I would be worried that by the time they're spun up, and comfortable in the job they leave. And yes. part of the jo- part of having an intern is the company is giving up some efficiency in order to help train someone to go into the workforce. And it's that's part of what it means to have an intern. But for a yeah. startup, I would want to take all the NRE time of training someone and have that person stay indefinitely and not just, oh, you're trained up four months. You're just getting comfy. See you later. And then you yeah. don't have them anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, what, what work right. did you have them doing? Was it stuff that required training? And then you just had to nuke them after four months and you lost all that time. And that was just part of the game. Or how, how did that work? Yeah. So it was really tricky because, as you say, like, not only do we only have them for four months, but because it's only available to first year students, you can never like you can rehire them as a regular co-op, but you can't ever have them like through this program again. Oh, OK. And so you, you're finding yourself in this sticky situation of a very short time span on people that need to be trained and you're trying to be productive yourself. Right. So to be honest, a lot of the times that we have had vet students over the years, it's one of those situations where we don't want to waste their time. Right. We're not going to make them pack stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's like something that's just like a bit of a silly thing. Like it's kind of rude on us to like hire students at a discount and then just give them manual labor. Sure. Right. Yeah. Especially when it's supposed to be a co-op where they're supposed to be learning something. It's part of their schooling, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And so it was, uh, to be honest, like Andy's done a lot of the the handling of the BET students over the years, Mm -hmm. but he found a really good balance between like not wasting their time, but also not wasting our time. Um, So it'd be things like, like for instance, in the first couple of weeks, we'd just be saying to them, try using the machine and understand what a CNC is. Because most of them don't even know what a CNC is. And they could like go through our documentation. And if they had questions that we hadn't written there, then that could be like a point of improvement that we could make. I see. But they also did other stuff like when they did get up to speed on um, understanding how the machine worked, we would try to get them to say like, 
uh, hey, we're trying to improve our packing rate. Do you have any way that you could create like a better layout for the setup here or like weigh the, the hardware differently or something like that? Sure. I remember we got one of our bet students near the start to make the first it was the first time we'd ever done pcb milling on the machine because andy and i didn't have the time to do it <laughs> yeah and they were really into electronics because they were in the electrical engineering program cool. and so we had them we just said hey try to figure out how to do this and if you can then write down how you did it and <laughs> so they just at the end of their term with us they put out a blog post of like this is how you do PCB milling on the mill one. Dude, so you kind of you kind of use the bet students as like almost like special projects or like here's either a softball engineering problem of like improved throughput or kind of an open-ended thing of like just explore this and tell us what you found at the end of it. Stuff that is important and not urgent that you and Andy were busy just with the daily operations, but they would come in and they would work on the thing that like you'd love to spend time on but just didn't have the time to do. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. Like that's, that's I w- yeah, cool. I would say on the most part that's that's what it would be. Okay. They they even uh, when we were trying to work on our prototyping for a new machine which ended up later becoming the long mill. Yeah. They were critical in sort of the initial phases of doing that. Yeah. Where they were prototyping making it larger and stuff and you know, <laughs> we taught them how to do 3D modeling and then they would run the 3D printers and s- assemble it and we would be able to take a look at it and be like, "Hey, you know, maybe you could make some changes here and there. Sure. But you're right. It's kind of it's kind of using them to their advantage where, you know, you can't give them a super hardball engineering question. Mm. So you want to make it productive for their use of time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. I, and I, I like this because I think and Lucian, correct me if you if you feel differently. But like, I feel like whenever we talk about hiring, it's because we're like, holy moly, we need a person in this role. And like, it's because <laughs> yeah. it's important and urgent. And in this situation, you're hiring because it's important and not urgent. And like, it's like, oh, yeah, it's subsidized. It's not that much money to have someone come in, but it would be great to have someone thinking about this. Like, that's something that there's there's it's not a reactionary hire. It's a proactive hire, you know. It is. Yeah, it was it was very much uh, uh, recognizing that the situation was available to us and just trying to use it as best as we could. Yeah, there were cases where it felt like it spread us out a bit thinner than if we didn't have them. Mm-hmm. But I think in hindsight, it was useful because being that we were still in university and Andy and I hadn't been in like very managerial roles, it gave yeah. us a little bit of experience working yeah. with other people. Yeah. And what did eventually happen, I think, I think this happened in 2019, was we hired on a, a more full-time co-op student over the summer. Okay. So they were a more experienced person and we also eventually like led that into just a couple months later hiring our first like full-time role and that was actually in sales really sales was your first full-time hire <laughs> it was That's yeah that is interesting yeah. wow and and i'll tell you why it's because what happened was after the kickstarter um which what was successful and we were very impressed <laughs> like that 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 actually happened yeah. now is this the kickstarter for long mill the for the one? mill one still okay okay the sales dropped back off like we we set up our website and you know bumped up the price because we said that the kickstarter price was like a special price yeah. and then just like left it there and you know kept doing what we were doing mm-hmm. like making some projects with it and talking to people about it and stuff like that yeah and we were getting i think for like two or three months like zero sales like three months in a row oh yeah yeah <laughs> 
So you're like, it we need bad. to, we need to get some some money in the door here. <laughs> exactly. So it was a situation where we, I think we lowered the price again. Um, we tried changing up our methods about talking about it. And then after a bit more time had passed and it was still like not reaching what we thought it should be reaching, mm-hmm. Annie and I decided because we're technical co-founders, we'll just keep working on the technology yeah. and we'll bring someone on in sales and teach them about how this machine works so that they can talk about it as if like they know what they're talking about sure. so that they can kind of like integrate themselves in like the 3D printing and hobby CNC communities the way Andy and I had sure. and try to like get more people to understand that this product existed. Yeah. So like, this is also before, did you have a customer support person? Like, did you have someone respond? Were you and Andy responding to customer support emails? Yeah. Were you guys like also doing like, were you doing any marketing or was it, did you just go from Kickstarter to salesperson? And there was, there's, were you like running ads on Google? Yeah, we we tried, uh, we tried doing some ads and we did SEO stuff. Like we, we did some of the lower hanging fruit stuff, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, we also, um, sent out some mill ones to, uh, some people that had YouTube channels. Yeah. I think this was around that time. Like we got one to Thomas and Ladderer. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah. And a couple other machines to, uh, I think it, the channel is called Apprentice Marks and a couple other smaller ones. Uh-huh. But yeah, it didn't seem to be having as large of an impact as was needed. It wasn't like, once again, we were students. Yeah. And we weren't requiring the finances to be coming in. Sure. It was more so just that we started once again doubting if we should even be spending time on I this. see. Yeah, yeah. Because that was the whole point of the Kickstarter was to validate product market fit. Do people want this? Is this a thing we should pursue? And yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was it led to this interesting situation. When was it that we did the Kickstarter launch for the long mill? Maybe it was 2021. But in any case, we had at one point in time, I think it was in 2020, we were fulfilling enough machines that we decided to move to, there's this uh, entrepreneurship space in Kitchener (laughs) that we got like a subsidized rent for. So we decided to move there. It arguably had less space than we had in the the student housing. (laughs) But it was cheaper? Um. Oh, and it, well, no, it was more well, expensive it was money. as well. Yeah, right. Because at least yeah. it was a student housing. At least then. it's not student housing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think like a year and a half in, when our landlord found out we were running a company in the student housing, he got mad at us <laughs> and said that we should pay him rent for our company. What? Because, you know, we were running a company out of there and he wanted to pay like one person's rent, but for the company. <laughs> Which is fair. It's kind of fair. Like, but it's also to, you're in his the defense space for you're just renting hey, the com- space. He, uh, Steve, yeah. Hey, Steven, companies are people. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's literally what he's arguing. He's saying yeah, that the company yeah. is an extra person that needs rent. Oh, that gets exactly. Nice I don't like that at all. <laughs> like in his defense, the rent at this place was really good. Yeah. Like it was like four hundred dollars a month. Yo, and you guys started yeah. CNC lots out of a place like four hundred dollars a month. Yeah, dude. Wow. Um. So we 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 got worried, and uh, when Andy Andy talked to him, and he's like, "Well, why are you charging that much?" It's not like we're costing you any more money. Yeah. And he was like, well, I heard you're running 3D printers. And then Andy said, well, the max they're probably using is like $25 a month in extra electricity. Yeah. Like max, max, yeah. right? Yeah. And then the <laughs> landlord's like, okay, fine. Pay me $25 a month. <laughs> that's great. But that spooked you guys. And you're like, nah, we want to get into a big boy space now. Uh, Yeah. It was a combination of that and just like, 
we were trying to explore new horizons with the company. Yeah. Like if it was going to go anywhere, like we were going to try to see if we could get it to go anywhere. Right. So, and it's nice to like be able to do work in an office rather than like on a living room. That perfectly matches how Steve and I decided to bite the bullet and get into an office right. from the garage. Yeah. We, were, right. we were in my house and like, like we brought poor, poor Tom, <laughs> we brought our packaging guy through to like have a meeting and we're like sitting yeah. on overturned trash cans in my garage talking about making an order of like <laughs> foam. And that he was such a sweetheart. He didn't bat an eyelash. You know, he was just he, mm, was he, thought, with it was it. he thought it was funny. But a like trooper. But you got to you got to start somewhere. But at some point, it's like eh, you kind of have to have a proper space with like air conditioning and heating and electricity. And like there's just something yeah. you need. You know, the yeah. idea of like paid personnel taking their lunch break in your unfinished kitchen was just kind of mortifying. Yeah, yeah, we kind of didn't <laughs> right. even want to. I props to you for like endeavoring down that. And it sounds like also your setup was a lot nicer than mine would have been for like having random people come to my house and like in my garage. Yeah. Like that's if it's just students on campus, that's one thing. But like I'm just a dude with a house. Like that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is weird. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, we did. We did have a situation with that where. um for the BET students in particular, mm -hmm. we had to have proof from the university that we had insurance to have them on property for our company. Yeah. But we couldn't, like, we, we were planning to get the insurance because we needed it. We wanted to cover our, you know, inventory anyway, yep. in case something went wrong. Yep. But we didn't really have it at the time. And so as like a stopgap, we just told the university, no, the students aren't going to be at our company. They're going to be working on campus remotely for us. And that's kind of <laughs> technically true that they were on campus. Yeah. And and they did. We actually, like a couple days, instead of having them work in our living room table, we just said, you guys meet each other in the computer lab <laughs> on campus and just, you know, sit next to each other and do your work. <laughs> and we'll come over to you and check in and see how you're doing. Wow, you guys found such a little loophole there. <laughs> we had them work in the student machine shop to prototype some stuff for us, just like we had done. Wow. On their, like, quote-unquote work hours, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Waterloo, I love it. Yeah, Waterloo is, <laughs> what a great place to start a thing. Like, it sounds like they just totally boosted you guys up and tried to shoot you out into the world as much as possible, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a great opportunities, a couple different turns, I would say. So after you got to you hired your salesperson, you moved to that new space, you got out of there. Now you're five yeah. people. So now stuff. I'm assuming the salesperson brought in some some more dough. You know, you're starting to get get more sales <laughs> or no, based on your life. You laugh. think so. <laughs> is that not what happened? <laughs> so this is where we kind of took a turn, right? Okay. We had I think we had at the time we'd had the co-op that was full time. Yep. Uh, but only during the summers we had. So officially, we only had one full time person mm -hmm. and we still had bet students like maybe like between two and four, even coming down to this new office space. Were you guys paying yourselves at this point? No. OK. No, we weren't. Yep. Uh, the company was not making a crazy amount of money. So basically, all the money was going towards like we hadn't got any investment and we hadn't actually even put any of our own money into the company. It was all from the we grants. We used the initial Kickstarter. Oh, yeah. And because our, our profit margins were a little bit over 50%, mm -hmm. we paid for the first batch of manufacturing and the second batch of manufacturing nice. with the Kickstarter. That's great. And then when the second batch of manufacturing sold, then we kept half of that off to the side to make the next batch. Sure. And then the half left over was what we were using to pay people. <laughs> interesting. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. That's an interesting little leapfrog method to get a yeah, little cash. Yeah, it's kind in. of like constantly building on top of your 
past successes. Sure. Katamari. Um, <laughs> yeah, Katamari Damacy of business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was it was tricky, but basically what happened was the only outside funding we got was from the EQOP program and from this other program called Jumpstart, mm-hmm. which was a government-funded program that we applied for. It was also no strings attached. Yep. And it was like a very rigorous application process. Yeah. And that got us 60K. Nice. Oh, that's okay. great. That's a good yeah. amount for you yeah. guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that all kind of came tumbling down because the salesperson, you know, she was trying her best. Like, I don't think she did anything wrong. Yeah. But it was this weird situation where she just kept trying. We were telling her, yeah, you're doing great. Keep doing what you're doing. And the sales basically didn't change at all between when she wasn't there and when she was. Really? And it was this, like, in my mind, kind of catastrophic night where I stayed late. And I did some math on like what our current spending was. That's the most terrifying sentence ever. I stayed late and I did some math. <laughs> like a yeah. catastrophic, catastrophic math. math. Wowza. <laughs> you, I mean, like just imagine you're you're trying to start up your own business, right? Yeah. And this is your first full-time employee where, you know, it feels like you've got some forward momentum. Yeah. And the math comes out to saying that if things keep going the same way that they're going right now, in a month you will be bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> I'd, I'd stop. I'd start selling machines myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my um, God. So that was like, when I tell people, I say like, that was the time that our company almost shut down. Yeah. Because essentially, um, we had to right away kind of like let go of the salesperson. Mm-hmm. At the time, we also had a newer co-op student from the university. And this was like the first time we'd ever had a student from the university do like the worst possible job ever. Yeah. And so we felt bad, but we were like, it's kind of convenient that you're doing the worst possible job because we need to save the money anyways. Yeah. yeah. Sort of deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we let him go. And so it went back to being me and Andy again. Right. Uh, we had the e-co-ops because we'd already paid up front for them. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, the bet students. Sure. Because we'd paid up front for them. Yeah. But I've kind of skipped over how like in this window we had been prototyping this long mill we'd also been doing actually a contract on the side as like another exploratory thing to see uh this guy was trying to see if we can make him a custom machine to manufacture orthotics for shoes out of foam yeah and so we'd been doing a contract on the side there and had learned a lot about how we could improve our mechanics and our electronics for our machines yeah so when it went back to me and andy we said okay this is the plan I think this happened at like around Christmas time. Oh boy. We're going to liquidate our assets. Like we're going to put a sale for our machines and just try to get as much money as we can to last us. Yeah. If we manage to sell, like I did the math on this and Andy checked it. Like if we manage to sell at least 70% of it, then that will cover the expenses for the office and, you know, our other expenses for the next three to four months. Mm -hmm. And I think we can put out a Kickstarter in the next three months for the long mill <laughs> because this is like, we think it's a good product that people will like. And that's how you guys made a bunch Ooh. of money before was like when you get it on the Kickstarter market, that's where you got it in front of a bunch of people and you sold them. Mm-hmm. So if you could just do that again with another one, like then Kickstarter's the way that you get it in front of people. If sales wasn't working, if marketing yeah. wasn't working, like go back to what you know worked before. Yeah, like we're... We're terrible at marketing ourselves. Like, we're nerds, <laughs> right? And, <laughs> and the other problem with us is, like, we hate overselling ourselves. Yeah. Like, when we tell people the machine can do X, 
It's like a guarantee. Yeah. And if it can also do other stuff, but it's not a crazy thing, mm-hmm. then we don't mention it at all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. And so people, but the problem is, is like people are so used to being oversold all the time. Yeah. That when we, they see us talking about the like undersell of what we know it can do, mm-hmm. they, they sometimes think we're overselling it. Yeah. So they think it's even worse than that. Right. And then, right. you know, people don't want to buy it at all. So anyway, the Kickstarter had worked in the past, but it was also just a matter of like, once again, we're trying to like renew, you know, is, is the interest in this high enough that we want to keep working on sure. this? The other aspect was just, uh, yeah, we were bad at sales. So this was a good way to get sales through. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect was we were doubting whether the mill one could be a viable product to sell into the future. Yep. And so this was us kind of like pivoting to say, because one of the feedback we'd gotten about the mill one was people love the design, but they wish it was bigger. Okay. Yep. And so this was us kind of responding to say, okay, here's a bigger machine. Mm-hmm. Do people like this more or less than the mill one? And if they like it more, then maybe we'll pivot. If it doesn't succeed, then we can just say, ah, this was a fun run. Yeah. And we're, we still would go back to school. Yep. Right. Yep. And uh, so we set the, the goal at 60K again, because that's what the mill one goal sure. was. And the long mill, I think, sold like 460K. <laughs> Wow! <laughs> yeah, you guys smoked that goal. Holy Congratulations smokes. there. That's awesome. That's awesome, yeah. dude. Yeah, so it was really crazy. So why do you think it was so different? Was it because it was all the feedback you had incorporated from the mill one? Or was it like, do you think the video was different? Did you market it differently? Why was it so much more successful than the first? Um, I think to a degree, it was more likely that it was going to be successful because we had already had a bit of a community built up from our existing machine. Right. And we knew that, I think to, to that point, we had already sold maybe like 300 mil ones mm-hmm. in the last three years. Okay. Like averaging about 100 per year. Yeah. And since people were telling us they wanted it to be bigger, we were hoping that some of the customers would kind of like, quote unquote, upgrade from the mil one to the long mil. Sure. So those were kind of like more guaranteed sales. Right. But we were also kind of hoping that by that point, we'd set up a bit more of a reputation in the hobby CNC community. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I think the Kickstarter video, th- it was fully made by us. Like, we didn't get it contracted out. Yeah. And so you could arguably say that the quality was worse <laughs> than the original one. Yeah. But we did put everything we had into it because we knew it was like, once again, kind of a last hurrah situation. Right. Uh, a make or break, right? Yeah. But it's hard to say. Uh, exactly what the the success that was that came from it. Mm-hmm. I remember the first day was real. Like I think within the first sixteen hours, we had sold sixty k. Yeah, <laughs> which was wild. And you guys were us. like, like, "Okay, we're all." We're, that must have been an <laughs> unspeakable relief. Like seeing that money yeah. come in and being like, "Oh wow, okay, fine. There's money coming in suddenly." Like that must have been incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had me was, on the edge of my seat. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was really, really crazy because we we kind of just were like, let's just pretend like this is going to work yeah. and try our best and then just see what happens. Yeah. And I remember we set up a live stream to go live once the Kickstarter went live or like shortly thereafter. Yeah. And we were just talking to people and being like, hey, I hope you guys like this. We worked really hard on it <laughs> and answering people's questions and stuff like that. Yeah. And we were like, oh, wow, there's a decent amount of sales coming in. Wow. So you were like seeing it happen live with people watching you go, 
oh my gosh, so much money is coming in. That must have been a cool experience. Yeah, yeah, it was really wild. Yeah, and we were super tired at that point too. <laughs> so once that happened, you get in a bunch of money from Kickstarter, like almost half a million dollars. And mm. were you and Andy like, okay, time to go into higher mode again? Like time to, like, did you kind of like flip the switch and now decide we got to get people in? You already had the space, you know, you had, yeah. had the design good and ready to rock. Like what... Did you just fly past five people? Like, what What did it look like from there on out trying to fulfill these now? Yeah, the day after the campaign closed, what happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it was slow, I would say. Mm. It wasn't uh, an immediate inflection point okay. in the company. Yeah. Um, because at that point, we were just the two of us, right? We had gotten, at that point, everyone else was gone. Even the, the bet students were back, like, on cycle, right? Yeah. So it was just the two of us. Mm. But what happened was it takes a while for Kickstarter to process the funds and actually release them to you. Sure. So we couldn't even really do much until we had the money. We ha- we were almost bankrupt. Like, right. The, the money didn't really exist. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't want to take out loans or anything because we knew the money was coming. Sure. Um, but what we did do is we started looking and we changed our approach. We said, instead of finding someone in sales, because the sales have been secured. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're going to find someone in like supply chain and fulfillment okay. to help us get machines out there. Sure. And so uh, we found a guy who's still on our team today, Akena, and he was our first real legit full-time hire in my mind yeah. because he's the f- first one that actually stuck around rather than us having to let them go because we were running out of money. Sure. And so that was like the first hire. And his first job was, okay, we need a bigger office because wow. these machines are bigger and we're going to have a lot of inventory. We can't stay here. Wow, right? yeah. So we assigned him to like help us find a new location and rent like a huge semi truck that we are going to load all of our pallets of material <laughs> into and drive it to the new location and unload it. And he was kind of like, uh, we, we got a new cycle of bet students, another four students. So he was like ordering them around to like help pack everything up and move everything over. Wow. And, stuff like that. <laughs> and once we moved to the new location, the first thing we did was we hired our first two full-time packers and it ended up being just the five of us for the next, I think, like, couple months. Okay. Like, five months or something like that. Right. Where we were just kind of, we were in this new space. We were trying to, like, figure out, you know, how are we going to set this up to accommodate shipping this many machines? Right. Because it's, it's a lot of machines to ship out. We we had gone from shipping 300 small machines in three years. Mm-hmm. And now we are trying to ship over 300 of these much larger machines in like six months right yeah and so it kind of stayed at that point for a while Mm -hmm. and we maybe had like one or two other employees trickle in and the existing packers that we hired on they would slowly improve in their understanding of what what was going on at the company and so we promoted one to start running the print farm and then he ended up also getting promoted to later be kind of like uh overseeing other packers that we hired on okay but for the longest time, it was actually still just me and Andy as the only engineers, mm-hmm. the only customer support. Akena joined us for doing customer support mm-hmm. on the side as well. Yeah. And me and Andy were making the website, making the documentation, making the marketing material. We were just focusing on people paid to get machines. So we're going to put money into making sure we can get the machines out. Sure. Yeah. And so I think even by the end of that year... Our team was maybe like six or seven people where it was just still me, Andy, Akena, who was like overseeing some other stuff and maybe like three full-time packers or four four full-time packers or something like that. Mm. 
And that was about it. It's it's been our experience that the Packers are like the easiest hires to justify because they just you just need to hire them to match order volume. It's like mm-hmm. that's a pretty easy consideration, but it's freeing up that space for the extra people and like deciding do I really wanna like outsource this work I was doing to a new teammate or not. I'm sure that was a good part of the considerations you guys had. Yeah, because if you have like like a illusion, like you said, if you have a lot more orders, like the cost of the packer amortizes across all the new sales that you have. But if you hire someone that's like an engineering or like has like one time or like uh, McKenna, his time is not necessarily amortized across the sale of every machine. So it's like just the total profit of all the machines that you sold has to justify paying for that full time hire. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, so some hires are easier than others, but from, from exactly. those five of you guys get working on the Kickstarter, was it more Packers that you hired from there? How, what, what did the growth look like beyond that of like, who else did you try and go into sales again? And like, what, what did that look like? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, actually, I have a, I can actually pull up a spreadsheet of the exact order. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I love it. <laughs> um, That's cool. Yeah, actually, so from there, um, so this was all happening uh in like late 2019 2020 mm-hmm. sort of range. Yeah. Um the ratio was mostly like for every you know 2 to 3 packers we were hiring on, we were hiring one specialized position. Okay. And at the start these people were were just kind of like there to generally help across the board mm-hmm. because Andy and I were had our fingers so deep in everything that we didn't have a very specialized need for like a specific position. Right. It's more just like, we need people here to help <laughs> Andy and I do what we needed to do. Interesting. And marketing would have been the thing that like would be easy to hand off. But because we had tried that in the past, I think we were kind of like not Afraid. willing to yeah. go that direction. Uh-huh. Um, so what happened actually was the people that we hired on were other people that were kind of like general engineers and writers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. People that basically we could get them to do some small prototyping on the side, or maybe we could get them to um, do technical writing for our documentation. Right. Uh, we could teach them about our customers so that they could help offload some customer support. Like most of the stuff that's kind of like in the technical area of dealing with our product sure. to kind of spread the load. Wow. That kind of went on for, for almost like close to a year. And I think only it was near the end of the year where maybe at that point we had like maybe 12 or so people on the team. So were you still just running off of Kickstarter money or did you get back to selling? Were you, were you after the Kickstarter, like were mm-hmm. organic sales coming through or was this all pretty much just still Kickstarter? I mean, we did the same thing with the Mill One Kickstarter. We we made it available on the website. Mm-hmm. What we did differently this time was we made it available immediately after oh. as a pre-sale. So it was like, these aren't going to be fulfilled until the Kickstarter orders are fulfilled. Yeah. So it was kind of like an extension on the Kickstarter in a manner of speaking. Yeah. And what happened with those was we did get more orders trickling in because, you know, the Kickstarter was much more successful to the pre-orders to the site, which was helpful to keep some money coming in throughout the rest of that year. Yeah. But what did happen was as we started nearing the end of the year, those sales were not very strong Mm -hmm. because it was getting to the point where we hadn't shipped the Kickstarter units out. And so there was no like validation on how good this product was. People were waiting for reviews. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So 
So there was like a hype near the beginning where people were like pre-ordering because they were like, oh, I missed the Kickstarter. I'll still just jump in line. Yeah. But as time went on, they kind of like weaned out and people were saying, we just, you know, I think people were saying with their money, we just want to see what the machine can do. Yeah. I think we saw the same thing when we launched the kit version of the pick and place is like on the launch day, we sold a bunch and then a trickle off from there. And then until they actually went out the door and people got them, not much. Because people were waiting, yeah, yeah. they wanted to see how it was, and then once people started saying, then they, you know, they came back up and they kind of found their steady state. So that's interesting. You saw yeah. that too with Kickstarter, and so and that's mostly what happened. I would say, like we we pushed really hard the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. We had to significantly expand our print farm. This was another one of the late night math <laughs> <laughs> things where I was just like, I like added up the cost of the time cost of all the prints we were doing. Yeah. And uh, you had to factor in the math of like, we weren't there 24 hours a day. Yeah. So you had to like run certain prints at the end of the day to get the most out of the printer yep, yep. and run certain prints during the day when you're there to get the most out of it. Yep. And once you kind of stick that all in a spreadsheet and then you multiply that by the number of printers you have and reduce like a failure rate off of that, yep. then it'll tell you, it. even if you run that at max capacity, how many machines worth of parts will you have? Yeah. And then the math came out to like half of what we were aiming to do. <laughs> and I have made dozens of those spreadsheets for stuff too. And the, it's, it, right. it's hard to find a good solution for that kind of thing. Like managing print farm throughput is like, a very complicated, many-dimensional problem that's... Uh-huh. It's just a spreadsheet right now. Like, there isn't a good thing for that that I've found or Lucian has found yet. More printers than you need. Yeah, the solution <laughs> is kind of just buy more printers than you need and then just turn it all on and know that you'll be okay, which is jank. But, right. like, there isn't a good way to level it easily right now. One of the... Also, the, the <laughs> other things that we found to be difficult was... When the print farm operation got offloaded to someone who was able to run a print farm, but they maybe were not as like experienced in their role, mm-hmm. if you gave them too complicated of a schedule of, you know, run this, then run this, then run this, mm-hmm. then what would happen was if they missed something or a failure happened or whatever, then they would like think that they needed to rerun it or they would just get confused about what to do and it would mess up the cycle for that day. Right. Right. Yep. And yeah. the problem appears is like if you have too many 3D printable parts that you can't print them in a day cycle, then you have to have like a week cycle of like on this day you print these, and on this day you print these, yeah. and then on this day you print these. Yeah. Oh my God, Chris, you're speaking my yeah, language. Yeah, we, we, we've had this conversation so many. It's so <laughs> funny to hear this coming from another person that isn't Lucian. <laughs> uh, yeah, we it, needed to do like a, a three week cycle because there are some parts that covered three weeks of production, but it was a 26 hour print, and you run it once right. every three weeks, and it's just. Uh, yeah. This, I wanted an algorithm to tell me what we do. Yeah. I know, I know. Exist. I wanted to make one too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a hard one. It, it was so tricky. And, and people would like, inevitably, they would miss a day cycle and then the parts would be out of whack. And when you're people like us, where we're like working really close to like the edge, where it's like if the printing gets delayed by a week, then the packing gets delayed by a week. Sure. And like all these other delays kind of follow. A lot of just in time stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was it was like not ideal, but you know, you kind of go through iterations on that and adding more printers is a good solution. <laughs> uh we we um really early on we actually started doing some automations on our printers. Yeah. Uh we worked with a company. This was before the present day where you've got like nice release on the print surfaces for printers. Yeah. We found a company that specialized in that before that was commonly available. Cool. 
And what we did is on our print farm, all of the printers would be tilted forward slightly. Mm -hmm. And we would uh, just go to a tool online that uh, allowed you to input your G code and put how many loops you want. (laughs) And it would just make a super long G code file. Yeah, yeah. And then you could paste in uh, what do you want to do at the start and the end of the file. And it would put that in the loop too. Sure. So we'd put that (laughs) on the SD card and just like run this printer over the weekend. And the... The, between the prints, it would just like move the print head to the back, come forward and sc- scrape the part off sure. on the print bed into a little bucket to hold the parts. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's really yeah. cool. So yeah, there's a lot of these like automations that you're trying to work on. But yeah, we were just we were just like eye on the prize. You know, let's just try to get these machines out. Yeah. And then I think it was only we we fulfilled most of the orders between October and December mm-hmm. of. I want to say it was 2020 yeah. that we did that and then waited a couple months until like February, March of next year. And then that's when the sales started picking back up again. Because we there were of, reviews out and like... I think so. Okay. And and we set up things like, like I put some time into setting up a review system where it sends our customer an email saying, hey, it's Chris. I was just wondering what you thought of our machine. <laughs> yeah. Are there things that you like about it? Are you things you don't like about it? And we set that up as like a review system on our website. And another thing that actually had a really big impact on sales that we weren't expecting at all was the next year, we decided to go to a woodworking show Oh, yeah. where in the past, we'd only gone to maker events. Yeah. Yeah. They're typical. I like, remember you telling me this at stuff. Earth. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing about that was we sold a lot at that show. <laughs> like the show was very expensive, mind you. Like the maker events typically are free or a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. And this show, it was like over a thousand dollars just for entry. Yeah. And then if you want power there, you have to pay like another like thousand dollars. So you guys had a and, booth you know, and everything. You you set up with you were displaying at this event. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and we showed up there with our flyers and stuff, and we we just cut jobs while we were there. Like we we literally like cut out a chair. And then set the chair in front of the machine and people would be like, oh, cool chair. And we were like, yeah, we made that yesterday That's on cool. this machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think ever since then, we kind of realized that since the maker community was a bit too broad, we weren't being kind of like niche enough with our marketing, like how we were talking about the machine. Interesting. We were just saying, oh, you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. And, and people didn't feel like we were talking to them. Yeah. Uh, we realized that kind of focusing in on woodworking in particular was something that I guess there was a lot of woodworkers that had seen CNCs before, but they cost tens of thousands of dollars. Right. And so everyone walking by the booth was saying, oh, it's okay. Don't talk to me because I can't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd be like, well, it's only, you know, $1,500. And then, you know, their eyes get really wet. Yeah. yeah. What? I can buy this <laughs> yeah. now? That's what? Yeah. Wow. So you've, that's, you've that's found... That's kind of similar to us. Yeah. It, it really is similar to us because uh, a lot of people don't think of picking places in the cards. Right. Yeah, we're convincing tweezer users they need a pick and place, not pick right. and place users that a Bloomin PMP is suitable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so cool. So you ended up finding from going to the show, finding a niche that ended up being completely untapped because they were just afraid of they didn't know right. that it could be inexpensive. And you're like, no, it can be. <laughs> and then yeah, and that's where your sales started to pick up was like from going to that show. And like, did you start marketing t- more to that and change like your social media to like? focus more towards that market and like how'd you double down on that yeah yeah we definitely did we we kind of tweaked everything we were saying from it used to be like 
you know, putting it in a maker space and doing whatever you want with it and all that other stuff. Yeah. And we kind of changed it to saying, you know, things like your garage and your workshop at home and doing woodworking on it and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I think when we started getting people from the woodworking community with machines and making like actual woodworking projects with it, then that kind of distributed that sort of uh, uh, message wave out on the internet to people in like throughout North America, yeah. like other woodworkers. Mm -hmm. Uh, that sort of were able to resonate with that. Okay. Um, and that sort of attracted, because we can only do our best to attract like a local audience to go to shows nearby. Sure. So we kind of are relying to a certain degree on that to have an impact in our online space because we're mostly an online company just like you guys are. Yeah, yep. That's, we we had a kind of a similar experience with like, we went to uh, Electronica, which was in Munich, Germany last last November, almost a year ago. And it was it was heavily subsidized by Elector. They helped us a lot with getting our honeys out there. But we I, we definitely sold machines by being there. But most of what we learned was kind of what you guys learned from the woodworking event is like a lot of people would come up to the booth and be like, this would be great for prototyping. And I'm like, no, it's not for prototyping. It's for making like a short run of boards. And they're like, well, our prototype mm -hmm. runs are like 200 boards. And I was like, oh, right. oh okay. Like <laughs> Boeing, when they make their EVT build, they need a, at least like a couple hundred to distribute to all the departments and stuff. And like we completely were not marketing it as a tool for a large engineering organization, never with the intent to use it for production work, but to use it mm. internally to make prototyping revisions. And we came back from that. We're like, OK, this is a whole new vertical. This is a whole other group of people that we didn't even think would be interested in this that super were. And then that was very helpful for us going forward. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even. Like um, for for our company, uh, for our print farms at the start, mm -hmm. we were using like Ender threes and like you know Creality machines, like cheap ones. Yeah. We were buying them off Amazon, and I'm sure the average person, if they were kind of imagining, oh, who is this two hundred dollar three D printer going to be for? They would say, oh, it's probably for a beginner. Yeah, they would have never expected that some company is going to be buying like twenty of these. <laughs> and if they break down, it doesn't matter because it costs so little. You just buy another, buy another one, one. <laughs> to replace it. Just, is that really what you did? Just enders? Yes, enders? that is what we did. We thought about doing that, but we had so many problems with it. We did. We did minis. We did Prusa minis, and that worked out right. really well for us. Um, and well, mind you, this was before Prusa minis existed. Oh wow! Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, I guess so, huh? Because this was like four years ago or five years ago or something. Yeah. So we were using um, what was the name of it before we did Enters? It was a it was a Creality machine. The R10. No. One of their early uh, gen ones. I can't remember the name of it. Wow. It, it's yeah. It was like a sheet metal, you know, design similar to like a i3 similar design. Sure. Yep. We used those for a while, and then we switched over to Enders because those were pretty cheap and those were reasonably reliable. Sure. At the start, Andy and I were like careful about it. Like when we're in the laundry room, you know, me and Andy are spending the time to individually fix these printers. Sure. But once we got to someone else operating it, we just couldn't give them the same knowledge dump of like how to fix the machines. Sure. Yeah. They would try fixing it and it would take days. And we were just like, well, we've already spent your salary and you haven't even fixed it. Yeah. And we've lost time. Yeah. So just buy another printer. We, at one point, we did buy a Prusa i3, mm -hmm. I think like a Mark II. Yeah. And then just at one point, I think we just got unlucky and it broke mm -hmm. and Andy and I were busy and the print farm operator guys didn't know how to fix it. And so 
when something costs like $1,200 and it's sitting there and you know you could have just bought a couple $300 printers yeah. <laughs> and like kept it going. Yeah. Uh, when you're tight on money, then you're just like, well, because it's also I more throughput. Like you can buy three Ender 3s for the same price as one i3 and you're printing three times as much, but you're dealing with, okay, well, now it might break and it might be a problem. And that's a tough balance. Exactly. Like you want it to be reliable. You want to just kind of solve the problem and know that it's going to work. But mm-hmm. you also have to think about the I mean, in an ideal world, you have enough money to buy a lot of really good printers. But like that's just maybe not yeah. necessarily the case all the time. So trying to feather that line is hard. I, I think it reminds yeah, go yeah. for it. I was gonna say it reminds me of us using cheaper filament that worked well as an end use part, but jammed way more often. Yeah. And it just wasn't worth yep. it. Oh, okay. And so we we ended up spending a few more bucks per kilogram and it was one of the best decisions we've ever made for throughput on our line. Like there are some things that like it it just or or you, a, a better way of saying it is you should never buy store brand pop tarts or Q tips like those are two things by name brand it's just better it's not worth your time to get the bendy bad store brand cute they're just bad get Q tip brand and filament feel became one of those things for us where we're like okay we could if we just spend a little more money on it. Our throughput is insane. It's not even a problem. We just solves the problem. It's worthwhile. It's easily amortized into the cost of the machine. We should just do it. We should just right. spend that money. <laughs> but you know, it took us a while to figure that one out. I don't think we've had a clogged hot end. Since. Yeah, we haven't had a single problem since. So like, it, <laughs> well, it's, it's been worthwhile. But um, okay, so now you're at this point where you're big. You guys are flying. You're making machines. Yeah, I think we were maybe around like 15 or so. Okay. So then at that point from 15 to 35, because I is it just more linear growth at that point? Like what got you all the way up to 30, 35 people from there? Was it just sales started to pick up and like it was kind of just straight growth up? Um, I mean, that's a good question. I would say that it's over the years, like uh, ever since the, the launch of the long mill happened and in 2019 and kind of got away from the Kickstarter roots into just more consistent sales Mm -hmm. in 2020. It's just been kind of learning since then. I mean, to a certain degree, of course, in 2020, that's when lockdowns happened. So we had a lot of difficulty as a physical manufacturer. I mean, we were lucky that they didn't, here in Ontario, they didn't shut down manufacturers because they considered them to be like vital. Yeah. But we still wanted to keep our teammates safe. So we had to, as you know, People who had, like me and Andy, had only just inherited this team. We, we're not experienced businessmen or anything. Yeah. We're, we're like tinkery engineering kind of guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we kind of had to figure out the strategy for that, which was like people working from home, but even like packers working from home. Oh, my God. <laughs> How did that because happen? <laughs> you had to send inventory to their house? Yeah. So we had to come up with a system where basically uh, it kind of stayed in the office and he would kind of take management of the inventory and ship machines out himself. And at the start of every week, one of the packers would show up in a truck and he would load them with raw goods, which that person would then distribute to each of the packers houses uh, (laughs) alongside, uh, like if they needed a drill for that specific week or like a soldering iron or like a certain jig or whatever. They would hand those off too. And then that person would work in their room or their garage or anything else at home, process those raw goods throughout the week. Sometimes we do a pickup halfway through the week and then at the end of the week, or sometimes just at the end of the week. 
And at the end of the week, they would drive back around in the truck and pick up the, the <laughs> fully God. finished stuff, bring it back to the office, and Akena would finish assembling them together and ship them out. I love it. It's like decentralized manufacturing. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's like totally decentralized. That's nuts, dude. Did, yeah. it make your, uh, did it make your larger office, your recently upgraded office, feel silly? It did. Yes, it did. It was a big open space with only one person in yeah. it. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. That gives me shivers. I can't imagine. That's nuts. <laughs> it was very hard. Yeah. Um, especially like especially when you are wondering to yourself, like, how is this going to impact our sales? How are we going to be able to do like new engineering right. stuff? Yeah. When we're like so occupied just trying to get the packing done day to day. Yeah. So things really like are like on and off kind of pausing mm. when it comes to this sort of stuff. I think at the start of 2020, I was also finishing up my undergrad degree as yeah, well yeah yeah but in terms of uh growth i would say that 2020 was pretty slow overall in terms of the growth of our company you know you don't really want to hire too many people on during a pandemic yeah, per se yeah but i think once we got to the end of the year you know we'd had a lot of time to think and we kind of i i would say we kind of tend to go through hiring spurts. Mm. We get to the point where we feel like the team size is reasonable compared to the sales we're making, that everyone feels kind of comfortable. Mm. And we feel like we don't have any huge problems to solve. Mm. And then that's when we say, okay, well, we still want to do more stuff. Right. I think at the time, we were finding that there was a lot of customer support we had to give for the open source G-code sender that we were recommending to our customers. Yep. And so we were thinking, like, maybe we should start looking at making our own open source G-code sender. Yeah. There was also some consideration for, you know, maybe expanding our engineering a little bit more mm -hmm. and starting to continue working on more products. Yeah. When the original long mill came out, we had done a, a large spurt of engineering for that, but we wanted to keep making improvements uh, because people like the machine, and so we wanted to keep making the machine better. Sure. It kind of was like, I think we got pretty comfortable near the end of 2020, and then we would like bring in a couple of software developers, bring on some more packers, bring on some more people to do like supply chain and, and engineering, mm -hmm. and then we'd like leave it for a while again. Right. And, you know, see how that all balanced out. See, like, ba basically, we'd be evaluating at every spurt of hiring. You know, are these people settling into their role well? Does it seem like they're going to be able to bring enough value to the company that it kind of offsets their salary mm -hmm. that we're having to pay them? Right. So you would do that after hiring them. You'd be like, I think maybe we need, or or is this like you'd fill, you'd hire a software engineer and be like, does CNC Labs need software engineers right now? Should we? Or is is this one person filling the role sufficiently enough that we could justify hiring more? Is that the thinking? Sometimes it's one or the other. Okay. Like it can, it can be either. So like in some cases it was like, like for instance, customer support, mm -hmm. we're getting a lot of tickets and spending a lot of time on it. Mm -hmm. And that's probably not going to change. Mm -hmm. And me and Andy's time is worth a reasonable amount. And we have a feeling that if that amount of time is freed up for us, we could probably spend more time on like a new add on for the machine or improvements to the machine that would sure. help the sales. Yep. We think, right? Mm -hmm. And we're already spending a reasonable amount of time that someone could probably work on it full time. Right. So then that's pretty justifiable, I would say. Yeah, we, we, we have a line in that same vein here of like, everyone should be working on what they're the most uniquely good at. And not just what they're the 
most good at, but what they're uniquely good at. Like, what's something that only I can do? What's something that only Lucian can do? And like, that's what we mm. should be working on as much as possible. It was from one of our investors gave us that line. And I think about that all the time. Like, mm. you know, if you're uniquely good at something, you, sh- you should be spending most of your time doing that. If there's something that other people could do, then it's, it's a different story, you know? Right. It's important to focus that way. Like if there's something that many other people could do, then you hire for that. Just like you said, with customer support, it's like you can get someone that it's justifying that role for full time. You do it. And then you free you and Andy up to be working on stuff only you can do. Yeah, exactly. And and I think there's a lot of stuff where Andy and I were uniquely doing it. And they were things you could hire for, but they made up a much smaller amount of our day to day that we couldn't hire for it. Yeah. And so it was kind of a combination of like us finding roles that we knew we could fill. But in other cases, it was also what are things that we're not good at or what are things that we're not enjoying? Yes. Yep. (laughs) Because if you can't justify hiring someone full time for something you're not enjoying, but you also just really don't like it. Yeah. (laughs) Then maybe you can justify it anyways. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So like, for instance, when we hired on the software developers, um, the company was in a good spot financially. So we knew that if they didn't make money back at all, even for the first like six months or what have you, mm-hmm. then it would be fine. Sure. Right. Yep. Like I had a reasonable number of projects lined up that I felt like brought reasonable value to the company. Mm-hmm. In that case though, that was a bit different because I had no proof. Like <laughs> I didn't kickstart a G code sender. Right. Yeah. I didn't kickstart um like we had some other internal tools that they worked on and we had no proof of like how much time savings it could bring. Right. Right. Yeah. And the kick the G code sender is free anyway. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it but it it might sell more machines because people uh-huh. know that there's a good G code sender that comes along with it. Yeah, well and that's and that's the thing, right? Is like that was really one of the only real selling points at the time of like when I'm talking to Andy saying, Hey, maybe we could bring someone on for software development. Um, because if they make a G code sender, then we can have a G code sender. And the other thing I was thinking in my mind was since even to this day, we're really bad at marketing ourselves. I was thinking if we can make a G code sender and I can kind of position it as a not company specific G code sender, like if I could give it branding, that distinguishes itself from us and it can take on a life of its own, Mm. then my hope would basically be, you know, it is an open source project and we will develop it so that it's not oriented just towards our customers. It's oriented towards the community as a whole. Right. And I'm hoping if people find out about this G code sender, then maybe they'll find out about us by extension. Yes. It reminds me of like the the Prusa slicer model of like, they have really nicely tuned profiles for an Ender 3. And... If you buy an right. Ender 3 and you go on the 3D printing subreddit and you're like, what slicer should I use? Prusa slicer. Okay. And it boots up and you see all these glorious Prusa printers on the front page and your Ender <laughs> keeps clogging, but the profile's really nice. You go, hmm, well, what about those Prusa ones? Because you're already using the slicer. It's like mm-hmm. same kind of angle. You're, you're putting your name out there. You're still providing value for the community, but you're also saying, hey, if we made this good software, guess what? Our hardware is the same, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I would say like, I would say at this point, what Andy and I have done with our company, like the products we put out, I would say they've mostly spoken for themselves when people find out about them and they buy them. And then we hear back about their experience. Yeah. People love it. Yeah. And like, for instance, if you go check out the reviews on our website, I guarantee you, we do not censor it. Like one star reviews are there. Yeah. 
two-star <laughs> reviews are there. Yeah. And if you look at the reviews, they're like all five stars. I think it's like 95% five stars. Like people really like our stuff. Yeah. And I'm happy about that because if people didn't like it, I wouldn't be doing it. Sure. <laughs> like it, it's, <laughs> it's a two-way street in a manner of speaking. Sure. So I wanted to make a good G-code sender because I think some of the problem that we have as a company is just people finding out that we exist. Yeah. But once they find out, then they're like, well, I'm going to choose these guys because, sure. you know, it's a better option. Right. But at the same time, you know, back to budgeting for hiring, it's like, what is that worth? Right. Like, how can I put a number on that in comparison to someone's salary? Sure. Yeah. It's a gamble. And and in everything so far, you guys had validation with Kickstarter. And now this is the first time where you're mm-hmm. like, all right, we're going to roll the dice. We're going to see if it's worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. And And even to this day, I would say we can't, like, I don't have any hard numbers. We have a team of three software developers full time. Mm-hmm. Like it costs, I don't know, I'd say like around 300K a year. Mm-hmm. And they're f- almost the entire time, like their their full time salary is spent on G-Center development. Yeah, yeah. For a free piece of software. And I, I don't have any numbers saying, oh, this person bought the machine because G-Center exists. Sure. Or These people found out about us because it exists or anything like that. Yeah. So to this day, I still can't concretely say that it's a good investment. Yeah. Quote unquote. Yeah, right? sure, sure. But I think the way Andy and I look at it at the end of the day is we feel like we are putting something unique into the world and we're not dying as a company. Like we're, <laughs> we still exist. Yeah. And since we're here and we're trying to, to a certain degree, still just enjoy what we're doing, then why stop? Like why not just keep having, like paying to have it out there if we can afford it? Right. If we didn't feel like it was doing much, then it probably wouldn't be worth the money. Mm-hmm. But um, but if all your early feedback was like Universal G Code Sender is bad, like that's a pretty strong signal that like you know part of the reason why you have so many five star reviews on your website is probably because G G Sender exists. Like there's yeah. probably so many of those subtle little things. Like the experience of using your machine is easier because you were able to control that experience. You're able to own something that's really good. Make sure it really like does exactly what you. You, the customer's going to have the experience you want them to have, right? It's going to be a simple, straightforward yeah. thing. And like, that's it's, so valuable. <laughs> it's a trifecta here, really. Like, you guys are good at writing. The, you know, who knows better than you about writing CNC control software? You guys seem good at it. And your customers need it. Yeah, it is. It It is a, I guess I didn't bring up that point, which you guys have brought up, which is, is important. It's an interesting scenario for you to be a hardware manufacturer. Like, you can have as much control as you want over how well it's packaged, <laughs> getting the parts to them, yep. um, the assembly process and what that experience is like, mm-hmm. You know, teaching them about what this machine is now capable of. But if they then turn around and control that in another piece of software that you have no control over, and that software has bugs in it, or even something as simple as like, it doesn't have certain features in it, right? then because people aren't like a lot of our customers at least aren't very technically oriented. Mm-hmm. They see it as our machine being limited. Right. When in fact it's the G code sender limitations that are making it seem like our machine. Exactly. Because that's how they interact with your machine is through the software. So if it's going to feel mm-hmm. like, well, if the machine isn't doing what I want, it's this, you know, it's the machine's fault, you know, not necessarily exactly. that it's the software's fault. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something, even something as small as like, um, like let's say you're you're sending a G code job and something happens mm-hmm. and you know you lose the, the the file stream. Yeah. And they're wanting to kind of pick up where they left off. 
ideally, yeah. to keep cutting the job. That is like a fully G-code sender side of the equation. Yeah. Like that's not, that doesn't have anything to do with the firmware, yeah. with the electronics, with the hardware. Mm. Like you could, if you wanted to, you could have like a really high-end firmware with the hardware and build it in. But, you know, at the time that isn't a possibility and to date, it's still not quite there. Yeah. So it's a full G-code sender side of the equation. Right. And so if we turn around and we put that into our G-code sender, then now suddenly people are saying, wow, the long mill has a resume cut job after failure <laughs> feature and these other machines don't. Right. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> it seems Which like is crazy. it's the machine. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not the machine. It's just the software Cause, Yeah, because it's not. If they used G-Sender for their machine, they could have that same feature. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Wow. That's that's very interesting to hear. It's it it's cool to hear how that like you guys decided to hire for that. And even though there wasn't like an obvious immediate ROI on that one, it was still a piece of feedback that you got from customers. And so you're like, okay, we need to still prioritize this. This is something that they want. And like if you do what if you follow what your customers are asking for and do what's going to help them the most, you know. The word of mouth, the the communication, the reviews are all going to point towards you're going to do better as a company. Yeah, that's the hope, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like it, it, you're hoping that people are telling you the truth. Right. That, if they, <laughs> that when they want it, they actually do want it. Sure. And that it will help your business. Right. Because uh, sometimes people tell you they want things and then you're like, no, that's silly. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> there's, there's a great picture of like the iPhone. It's like, a, it's like a cartoon of Tim Cook holding up like the new iPhone 7. This was years ago. It came out. And it's like, we listen to everyone's user feedback and look what's on it. And there's like a kickstand and like a, a D sub port and eight track. And like, oh. there's a switch on the top that switches it between iOS and Android. And, you know, like there's all oh. these, it's like, you know, some people have a niche application, but if you make mm -hmm. that niche application for everybody, then it just becomes confusing. So you have mm -hmm. to think about like, what is truly best for everybody? You know, if I'm building this for everyone. What do I do that's going to make 99.9% .9 of people, not just the squeaky wheels? And the squeaky wheels can still be an indication of what you should be doing, but what's going to help everybody? What's going to be the best for everyone that's using it? Um, yeah. And I think one thing that I feel like sets our company apart to an extent, I, like I'm not saying we're unique in this way at all, but I would say like, I think if you want to run your own business, um, in a technology space, this is something that's worth considering, mm -hmm. is having the capability to take that feedback and filter it through sometimes accepting it and sometimes not. Yes. And it's hard because it's like, you can't, like, I can't give you advice on when to accept it and when not to accept it. It's yep. almost like a gut, you know, experiential thing, right? Yep. But we get a lot of feedback about our machines or about, or about our G-code sender or anything like that. And the feedback typically is that people are really liking it. And sometimes they can be surprised because, for instance, our machine still uses V-wheels yeah. um, and lead screws. Mm. And the common consensus in the CNC router community is ball screws are better and linear rails are better. Yeah. So if you don't have those, then your machine isn't good. Right. But it's, <laughs> when people tell us, oh, we'd like to have that on the machine, sometimes I just have to say... No, you don't, because <laughs> like lead screws and 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 uh, Delrin nuts, um, they can be finicky, and we're trying to work on improving the finickiness of them. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, they are very dust resilient yeah. in a inherently dusty environment made by CNC routers. Yeah, 
And I see lots of people saying, I want ball screws, I want ball screws. And then when they find out they have to clean them all the time yep. <laughs> and lubricate them, and then they still get jammed up when dust like eventually finds its way in there, and then you have to order a brand new ball screw. Right. This is not a problem at all with lead screws. It's not a problem with V-wheels. It's also going to increase the cost of the consumer. Like if you add it all does. that extra stuff, like it's also benefiting them of like it's a better product for less money. Like mm-hmm. it, that's kind of what most people are going to want from a CNC. It's actually quite interesting because on our machine currently, the only place we have linear rails is on the Z-axis because we wanted to reduce the the lever point for torquing yep. on the bit yep. when it's cutting. Yeah. So that was the only place we conceded. And that's the place that people tend to have more problems with because suddenly the Z-axis won't move up and down yeah. and they find out it's because the rail's binding. And that's because they were either like not lubricating it at all or never cleaning it off. Or sometimes sure. you lubricate it too much or you use the, lo- the wrong lubricant yeah. or anything like that. And it's like, you know, hey, like we, <laughs> we told you that this is a thing that can <laughs> yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. So that's funny. Yeah. Ball screws are definitely a slippery slope because then you need the accordion covers and then you need the extra support and like undercarriage to hold it that cover from saggy like yeah yeah trying to convince people something's diminishing returns is always a challenge yeah and the same kind of goes for our g-code sender there's there's certain features to it that other g-code senders have those features and we've kind of obscured them intentionally Mm -hmm. because we're trying to make that difficult call of like you don't need this right like listen to us you don't need this or we're trying to put something out there and we're saying you do need this one of the things that, that we did that was a really, really small thing was people weren't using the touch plate that we sold with our machine to be able to find the corner of the material yeah. for setting a zero point. Mm-hmm. And the reason why was because they were breaking bits on it. And so the feedback was just like, guys, why do you bother with the touch plate? Don't bother selling it. I break bits on it. Yeah. Right. And people were giving other people advice. People are saying, should I buy the touch plate as a new customer? They're saying, no, it doesn't work. I just use a piece of paper and I use my eye on the corner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I had to put myself in the scenario of like, what's really going on sure. here? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I kind of broke it down as like, I think the bits are breaking because on occasion the wiring harnesses are getting loose. And so it's not making a solid connection. Yeah. So what can we do about that? So at first it was like trying to make the wiring harnesses more reliable. Mm. But, you know, sometimes problems still happen, right? Yeah. And so I came up with a a new idea that I hadn't seen anywhere else, which was this idea of testing continuity before probing. Oh, cool. Okay. Just to double check that it's working. That's a cool idea. Yeah. Am I about to smoke this bitter now? Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and that's what I... So I implemented it in G-Sender. This is like the first time I've seen it anywhere. And it's when you hit probe, instead of starting the cycle right away, it just comes up with a window and it says, hey, just double check you're in the right spot. And if you want to click to go next, just touch the touch plate to the bit. Yeah. And it'll turn a green circle and it'll say, okay, you're good. You can go through now. Wow. That's so smart. And that super simple change. Um, now, like, we don't get those comments anymore of like, don't buy the wow. touch plate. Wow. What unbelievable. That's so cool, dude. That's so cool. And for the very few people that complained that they had to do that every time, we just put a thing in the settings that say, don't require it every time. And those people can just skip through because they see themselves as a power user. Right. They but can... everyone else, now that they're validating the touch probe every time and they're confident it's going to work and then it won't break the bit. Yeah. 
there's a way higher success rate and people highly recommend it. Though. That's so cool. That's great. Yeah, what's really the problem? The touch play should be salt making something easier. Like if it's not working, mm-hmm. there's something wrong with the product. It's not wrong with the, you know, with or, or with with the user's understanding of using it or something or the the experience just like you fix with G-Sender. That's so cool. Yeah. So it's it's really like a multi-tiered thing because sometimes when I'm seeing a problem, it could be a way that we're talking about it in our documentation. Mm-hmm. And so I just like tweak the assembly manual to say something slightly different. Mm-hmm. Like I think I think at some point people were like not sure how much they should tighten it or something. And yeah. I would just slightly tweak the language on it yeah. so that they would feel more comfortable. Yeah. Or in other cases, it's changing an FAQ or it's changing the software or... And, and the nice thing about how we've set things up is we're still a fully open source operation. Yeah. You know, the machine's open source, the firmware is open source, the electronics are open source, the software is open source, like start to finish. Yeah. You, you have access to all this stuff, right. right? Yeah. And I don't think that at any of those points, we are wasting resources or wasting people's time. Yep. Like, I think our machine design is unique. The firmware that we're using, we haven't touched at all because we don't think we can make useful contribution to it and we think it already works well. Yeah. The sender, we feel like we had a big impact on that. The electronics is like pretty standard, but they work pretty well, yeah. you know, so we're not wasting our time. But it also allows us to have control for most of the process from start to finish, yeah. I would say. Yeah. And that means that if we are seeing some point of friction with the customers, people trying to like, at the end of the day, we're trying to help people that are new to CNCing. Right. And, and for the audience, I mean, like CNC routing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> CNC in general. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, we're trying to help them. And so if I can take someone's comment about something being tricky and kind of put it through my filter of like, what does that actually mean? Right. And then put out something that addresses that, then that really speeds up the process. And sometimes if someone says, oh, I didn't like this, and I can recognize that that's coming from a power user where like no one else will care about that. Yes. Like someone says, <laughs> put this button right in the middle of the screen because I need it. <laughs> I'm just like, no, I'm not going to yeah, do exactly, that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, what's someone just being fussy about wanting it exactly how they want it versus like, what's mm-hmm. 98% of people going to want? Yeah. Yeah. I used to work at uh, Mastercam, a CNC control software company, and we had mm-hmm. some of the saltiest users that said, you added an extra click, an extra click to my workflow. This is awful. And like, they didn't right. care if it improved the experience. They just, you added my extra click. And it was always like, you had to think if you wanted to listen to them or not. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard. And, and some, and most of the time, that's a really good signal. Like, sometimes the squeaky wheel is an outlier. But, like, sometimes, you know, when we hear from a handful of people the same thing, it's like, okay, <laughs> this has legs. Like, they're, they're saying this mm-hmm. for a reason. When you start to get a couple pings of it, it's like, all right, there's something, there's something wrong here. Like, all right, yeah. bits are breaking on the, the touch plate. Like, we should probably look into fixing this somehow. So. Now that you guys are 35 people, business is going super well, what do things look like right now? And like, what, what is on the horizon for you for what's the next stuff that you're diving into? You know, where are you now and where are you looking to go? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I would say that we're, we're finding ourselves a bit at an inflection point because um, the, the team's at 35 which, you know, has kind of gone through these spurts as I laid out. Right. And I would say I'm pretty happy with where we're at now. We have a crew in BC that we're actually contracting to work alongside them on new electronic development mm-hmm. for this new board we're working on. 
And it seems like we've developed a great relationship with them. So we'll probably keep working with them in the future. Cool. Where it's a nice win-win. You don't have to have a bunch of experienced team members on the on your team that you're paying full time. Right. Because electronics is probably not something we're going to be doing as much as, uh, you know, hardware and software. Sure. And we've got a good hardware team. We've got great fulfillment team. Um, so, and our software team is going strong too. Sure. The interesting point is we're kind of reaching a sim- uh, another cycle of, we've kind of gone through a point of growth with the long mill when people are finding out about it. And uh, we got into the woodworking community and, and that kind of spread the signal further out and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But now we've kind of seen that taper off a little bit. And so now we're kind of at this point where we're asking ourselves, well, what do we want to do with this? Mm. Um, To a certain degree, we could just decide to stay as we are and just keep going. Like if we can keep sustaining a software development team, they can keep putting in work that every time they put out an update benefits thousands of users. Sure. Um, Like I think Gsender has like over like almost 20,000 users on it. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So it's it's like benefiting a lot of people. Yeah. Same with the engineering. It's like they put in a little bit of work and that now becomes an update that everyone benefits from. Right. Same with the documentation. You know, we put a little bit of effort into better explaining how a new CNC concept works. Or uh, for instance, we just spent the last eight months building a brand new uh, rotary axis from scratch yeah. uh, that we've released. That's it's so cool. nice. <laughs> Um, we're very, like, we're so excited about it because I think we're one of the first in the hobby CNC space to not just release a rotary, but it's a fully custom rotary. And on top of that, we've made, uh, all the documentation from scratch instead of just handing over the hardware, we've made it integrate with the G code sender. We've made it integrate with the electronics and we've made a bunch of sample projects to explain these tricky concepts about creating wrapped carves. Sure. And we were waiting because we people have been asking us for a rotary for like six years. Yeah. Now. yeah. <laughs> we've been waiting until now till we had the bandwidth and the team membership, uh, like on our, within our company to actually do it the right way. Right. Like the way we felt was worthwhile. Sure. But yeah, there, we do have as well, like other possible ambitions of, do we want to try to, increase sales through other means do we want to start looking at branching off to cr- release a separate type of machine because for the last couple of years we've been focused on mostly making add-ons and upgrading software just to continue to improve the experience of essentially a singular product sure. that we sell yeah so do we want to explore other verticals and and this is all something that i don't have an answer for you right now sure. we kind of <laughs> to a degree because andy and i are just kind of trying to enjoy ourselves we kind of if we feel confident that things can maintain the same way, then we just kind of sit down and we just talk and we just say, well, what are we thinking about doing? And we kind of just make a plan almost year by year yeah. of how we see ourselves going into the future. Sure. We are moving to a bigger facility. It's almost three times the oh, square Oh, I didn't footage. know that. You guys are moving. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's The cool. moving process started this month and will be finished by November. Oof. That's a that's a big move. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, you have to time everything because right. Uh, like ideally, you sell out of your inventory in the existing building and then have the new inventory delivered to the new space. Right. Ideally, <laughs> so that it's less work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also, if you want to keep like right now, our machines um, from the time you buy it, it ships out of our office in like two days. Wow, that's great. 
Yeah. That's impressive. Nice yeah, work. that's so, really cool. <laughs> we're working towards that, but we, we're almost there. We're not quite. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. We've been there in the past, but um, we go through cycles, right? Because as soon as you're out on one part that someone oversaw, like they didn't notice it was missing. Yeah. Then now like the whole thing's clogged up, yep. right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're just trying to figure out, like we're kind of taking it step by step. We're going to move to the new office space. We'll have more space available to us. And right now, we couldn't really sell more machines if we wanted in the current space. We couldn't really make a new vertical if we wanted, unless we have a bigger space. And when you look at like the cost of the salary that we pay versus the cost of rent, right? rent is way cheaper. So we're just kind of like taking that step and we're setting things up to see what else we want to explore. That's um, awesome, man. It's a good problem to have. It, it, yeah, it is. And uh, I think I think we're just going to see kind of how things go. We want to keep having an influence in improving the CNC router market. We have some projects underway that some I can't talk about and some that I can. One of them is like the the new board that we're working on, which if people want to find out more about it, like we have everything we do, we put on the blog posts once we think that it's like ready for prime time, quote unquote. Because sometimes if I talk about, I found this out in the past, if I talked about things that I'm just like having a fleeting thought about, <laughs> and then someone comes back later and they're like, where was this thing? Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm sorry. I didn't, yeah, I, I didn't mean to promise it. I've also experienced that. Like, you know, talking about the idea of a thing is not implicit, like saying that you're going to do it, <laughs> you know, mm. and that can be people will plan around stuff that they hear as a rumor and that's not true necessarily and it's hard you have to like be careful and like and not be cagey about it like still try and be communicative but it's you know you don't want to get people's hopes up if you're like just exploring a thing um yeah it, it's hard you know you don't want to disappoint people yeah yeah but i can say as far as the future overall i am very excited for the company like i i'm still very passionate about it after it's coming up on eight years that we've run the company wow and so it's it's really crazy to have gotten to the point where we're at now. Yeah. I'm selling like hundreds of units every month. Wow. Where we used to sell 100 <laughs> every year. Yeah, yeah. That's wild, um, dude. That's so cool. <laughs> and yeah, I think I think um like I I think I get well, I guess I can say cuz we probably are going to do this project as well. Uh we are working on another thing I'm very excited about which is a custom made router. Whoa, really? For the CNC router. Wow. And basically, the intent is that we know that a lot of our users get fully built out spindles, but what they're actually looking for is just the ability to control the on off and speed. Yeah. They don't care necessarily. Like some people do care that spindles are quieter or that they'll run for longer, mm -hmm. but some people are just looking for that extra level of control. Sure. So we're working on a new project that we're hoping will bridge the gap between a dumb router and a fully VFD'd spindle. Cool. Uh, and make a product in the middle, which I, like these are the types of projects I really like because they're not applicable just to our machine. Uh, like anyone on the market could use the technology, and essentially we're just giving that away for free because it's it's open source. Like we're paying for all the R and D. Yeah. And then we're just saying, hey, people, if you want it, you can take it. Sure. Wow, that's cool. That's that's going to be an awesome project, dude. That's sick. Yeah, I've I've dealt with that issue. It's you need to upgrade so many things just to put RPM on the spindle. It gets silly. Like I ended up always settling for like getting a spindle that has an RPM knob on top and just right. hate, kind of hating that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So so 
and and it op- opens up a lot of other possibilities too because if we can like if the a lot of like Makita trim routers or other trim routers are already running like closed loop uh loading mm-hmm. uh so that if they increase the load on the bit it kind of speeds up to compensate or or it changes the the voltage on sure. it sure but if we can get those signals to be going out to a control board then now the machine knows what the spindle is is experiencing it right and it can like do stuff with that information sure that's i'll leave that up to the imagination (laughs) of the listener (laughs) it can do stuff (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's cool cool uh well chris thank you for coming on the own podcast we appreciate having you man Thank you. <laughs> Where can this is fun? Yeah, this is fun, dude. And like, this is just an introductory episode to you and CNC Labs. I think like there's there's a million things that I had written down that we didn't even get to ask you. And I'd love Ooh. to have you back on, like not just interview style, but like with a topic in mind. And hear like, how do you do X Y Z versus how we do it at Opula versus how other people do it? And you know, I'd love to have you back on and for for something like that. That'd be sweet. Yeah, that would be really cool. It's it's great talking to you guys. I mean, it's it's kind of a bummer when uh, most of the startups that I run into are like software based. Yeah, <laughs> and then it just there's just like not that sort of level of communication. There's also it's it's not as often you run into open source companies as well. Right. Yeah. Um. Or some people say they're open source, but they're kind of like not committed to it. Yeah. To it mm-hmm. to a degree. Yeah. Whereas I feel like you guys are, and I feel like I try to make sure our company is as well Mm -hmm. um maybe not to the extent that someone like lulzbot is but you know at least we're trying (laughs) lulzbot is a lot because they only use open source software internally too and like they're Mm. at least they were i'm not sure i don't think they're quite the same way now since they got they got purchased but yeah right yeah there's there's a place to draw it there's difference between open source and like i will literally not do anything proprietary like not use any software that's proprietary i should say you know, the public can see my calendar. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Open source versus open company. But yeah, dude. Yeah. So where, where can people find you? Where can they find CNC Labs? Where, where do they hunt you down? Yeah. So hopefully the title of my company is in the title of the podcast it because be. it's hard to spell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's like probably one of the worst naming decisions we ever made. <laughs> <laughs> for what it's worth, I learned to spell it for this episode so and once you oh. know, once you know you know you know it's glorious it's, it's not the worst <laughs> yeah but if people want to find me i'd recommend they actually look up our cnc machine called the long mill okay because that's much easier to spell it's spelled how it sounds yeah. long mill yeah <laughs> and that'll lead you to like our website um you can check out our documentation if you want the documentation has a lot of stuff for teaching cnc that's not just for our machines right I am trying to make like a separate section of the documentation that's just general CNC stuff. Cool. But if you're someone who has a CNC router and you want to learn about like choosing software you might want to use or just like learning in general how the machine works, we've literally like created like a software wizard tool that you can answer questions about like what are you planning to make and what type of a person are you? And it'll wow. recommend software packages for you that and we made that internally. That's so cool. We've also made resources on explaining how feeds and speeds work. Uh, we have full tables that we provide to people. Um, like basically, I would say almost every step of the process, minus like the design software aspect of it, mm-hmm. everything after that, we've made as much as we possibly can, you know, talking about work holding options for CNC routers and uh, vacuum systems and we 
make these all so that they're completely neutral third party stuff. Like we're not intending to sell you on anything. Right. It's just trying to put the resources out there. Um, we also have a YouTube channel where we make lots of videos. We just finished a really cool series where we built an entire guitar from scratch on a CNC router. And we have released all the plans available for anyone to grab. That's cool. Um, or modify or anything like that. Um, we've done many other projects on there. They're all available for download. So, yeah, feel free to check us out at any of those places. And if you want to check out what we're getting up to, you can join our Facebook group or our blog. Um, and we also have a forum, uh, like an independent forum, separate from Facebook, that people also go on to to talk about CNC routers and get information. Cool. That's sick, dude. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute joy talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Stephen. I mean, I think there's so much we more we can talk about. Yeah. I'm looking forward to talking about open source and all this other... I know, we didn't even touch about open source. <laughs> well, we'll dude, we're, we're definitively going to have you on again, and there's a lot of other things to talk about. But Yeah, because you guys are doing so well, too, and I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked for the successes you guys are seeing. And I think I've told you this before. I've, I was watching you guys, like, before all the Lumen PNP stuff happened. And so it's been really cool to see that kind of rise happen. And we're just all here chatting about it and seeing how we can help each other out. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's been one hell of a ride. Yep. And it's great to be able to talk to you about yeah, it. Yeah. It is good to be able to talk to other people doing the same kind of thing. It is like unspeakably good <laughs> to mm. be able to do that. All right, folks, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. It helps us out a ton. Also, don't forget to check out Opula.io and sign up for our newsletter where we write blog posts and do customer interviews with other folks building open hardware. Also, be sure to check out the CNC Labs link that we'll add in the show notes if you want to go pick up a long mill or see any of their documentation or resources for getting into CNC. And we'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Wow, Mitchell, you took notes. <laughs> Damn, bro. Uh, Chris, for reference, we're staring, we're staring at like probably a 30-point bullet point list. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>